Hello and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is series 5, episode 22, by the back of the five great kings. Our story starts on the coast of India, early medieval times. And there, ships are queuing at the very edge of the ocean, waiting to pull into port, twisting round the small fishing boats as they go in. And these big ocean-going ships, they're often manned by Arabs. And they're going to be loading themselves up with cargo, with goods that will be taken back to one of the ports of the Caliphate further west and traded on the streets of, of Baghdad or, or one of the other markets that are hungry for Indian goods. In amongst these ocean ships was a man, although he was an Arab, he was unlike the others. He wasn't a, a trader, he wasn't a sailor, he was an explorer. And when his ship pulled into port, he would hop off and then he would go up and down uh, the port looking for another ship, one headed further down the coast, further east. And he made his way down the coast in this fashion, hopping ship to ship around the, the west coast of India, then around the east coast of India, until finally India ran out, and he boarded a ship that left India and went across the ocean and landed in China. And there he made his way to the palace of the Emperor of China. By and by, the Emperor of China heard of this man, and he was interested. Not because this man was an Arab, there were Arabs in China at this time, there were traders mostly, but there was something about this explorer that really caught the attention of the emperor. The emperor heard that he was a descendant of the prophet. So he was called in for an audience. The emperor asked the explorer, How did the Arabs conquer the Persian Empire? Ah, said the explorer, well, they worshipped the sun and the moon, so God helped us end them. And now we've got the richest empire, the most educated people and the greatest kings. Interesting, said the Chinese emperor. Who are the greatest kings? These are pretty tough questions, and the explorer failed this particular quiz. So the emperor had it explained to him. Here are the five greatest kings in the world. The greatest king on the earth is the king of kings, and he rules in Iraq, the center of the earth. The second king is the king of mankind. He rules in China and he is me. The third king is the king of the lions, the king of the Turks who are men lions. The fourth king is the king of the elephants, the king of India, the birthplace of wisdom. And the fifth greatest king in the world is the king of men. We call him that because he's the king of some rather nice men and, and also because we ran out of, of other names. Well, okay, the emperor didn't say that bit about running, about running out of other names, and I'm not too sure that the emperor of China really put himself number two on the list of greatest kings. I'm guessing that the explorer added that when he turned in his report to the king of Iraq, but you get the point. The story gives us a, just a glimmer of how powerful men to the east and west viewed India. They viewed it as under one powerful king, at least nominally. And... Well, that, that was never really true, not since the beginning of written history. But it was especially untrue now in the time of this podcast, in the 900s AD. For the most 
of this series of this podcast, we've been hearing of the war between two great dynasties of kings, the, the Palas of East India and the Pratiharas of West India. Not to mention the Rashtrakuta kings of the south who keep coming up and upsetting the balance of power in North India. And there have always been a whole range of other powerful kings in the background. More kings than you can shake an umbrella at. But the idea that there was one great king of India, which had always been wrong, was about to become as far from the truth as it could possibly be. Because those great kings of North India were starting to lose their power. Empires were slowly collapsing, and in their place would come smaller kings, local men. So in this episode and the next, we'll be hearing the story of the rise of these small kings and the end of these great empires. But we're going to start with another view from another Arab traveller, but this one will get much closer to the truth. Ready? Let's go. Baghdad, the early 900s AD. The bustling metropolis is at the centre of a huge empire, and it's the newest of the great cities of the world. Only 150 years ago, there was nothing here but just a, a small village by the side of the river. But then the caliph himself founded the city. By the way, that's not the caliph. He's not from the caliphate who invaded India. That, that caliphate was long gone. These are the Abbasid caliphs. And they'd made this city their capital. And now it was overflowing with, with artists and, and courtiers and soldiers and traders and books. Lots and lots of books. Books copied from other languages and cultures by the caliph's translators. Books written by the scholars of the caliphate. Books which inspired generations of scholars to go out and write more books. And soon there'd be a new book, one which contained within it accurate insights into the kings of India. It was written by one of these travelling scholars, a man named al-Masudi. He had written about all sorts of countries, and, and usually he would just give some fairly dry facts. But when he writes about India, his book comes alive. But al-Masudi, India was the first home of science and wisdom. God had given no revelation to the Indians, at least other than to the Muslims there, he said. But the Indians had remembered wisdom passed down from Adam, from the first humans. They knew about the study of the stars. They knew about the rules of good conduct. They knew how to live life well. So the Indians were proof, he said, that you can come to wisdom, to sensible decisions using reason alone. Revelation is not required. In one sense, Al-Masudi's view of India is just as naive as the emperor of China in the story. We think of, of Pakistan and Sri Lanka and Nepal and modern-day India as a sort of loosely connected subcontinent of lands. But he thought of it all as one land, maybe except for the bit in the extreme northwest that was ruled by Muslims. He thought of it all as one land ruled by one king. At least it had been, going all the way back to the first king, and the first king he called Brahmin. But al-Masudi had actually been to India himself, at least to the very edge of it. He'd stayed for a while on the banks of the Indus River, and he'd talked with Indians and he'd listened to them, and soon 
He heard about the the cacophony of small kings, and he wrote about them and some of the bigger ones. And so it was that the everyday folk of Baghdad were starting to read about the lives of the kings of India. And they read about one king in the north who lived by the banks of the Ganga River. He lived in Kanauj, the imperial city, and his name was Mahipala, which means protected by the earth. Mahipala was a Pratihara king, those, those kings from the dynasty from, north, from, from the west of northern India. Don't, don't be fooled by the Pala in the name, by the way. He wasn't one of the Pala kings from the east. In fact, he was the ancestral enemy of the Pala kings. Pala is just a, a common name for warrior kings. So Mahipala is emperor in the imperial city. It's not quite clear how he became emperor. There are hints in the inscriptions that something dodgy happened. One of the inscriptions mentions a stepbrother, a brother from another mother, who was emperor before him. But though this stepbrother only ruled for, for about three years or so, and his name soon disappears from the inscriptions. The fact that his stepbrother's name meant missing from the lists of kings isn't that surprising. Usually, these lists only mention direct uh, ancestors of the king who wrote the inscription. But in this case, the stepbrother's name was expunged really rather quickly, within a matter of years, in fact. He was officially gotten very quickly indeed. And some historians have put two and two together, combined the unusually short reign with the unusually short mention in the inscriptions, and they've guessed that Mahipala fought and killed his brother to get the imperial throne. Is that right? Well, we don't know. If there was an imperial cover-up, it was probably successful, and we'll never know for sure whether Mahipala killed his brother. You can get away with murder if you come from a reasonably obscure part of history and you're willing to wait a thousand years or so. Anyway, whether he was guilty of killing his brother or he just had an unlucky brother, Mahipala got control of the empire. And the book in Baghdad said that the empire was 960 square miles big. Which sounds like it's quite large, but it's actually pretty tiny by the standards of the large kingdom of India. It's, it's the size of Rwanda. It's a, it's a bit smaller than Belgium. Probably the traveller had undersold it, and Mahipala's kingdom was bigger, covering not just the area around Kanauj, or Kanyakubja, the imperial city, but up to the foothills of the Himalayas, where Pratihara architecture said to have shaped the temples. But it didn't spread that far west, not anymore. In the west, our Arab writer says that the kingdom had no access to the sea. And he's probably right about that because Arab traders were working up and down the coast, and our Arab writer would almost certainly have consulted them when writing his book. So Mahipala didn't have access to the sea, and that mattered. It meant that Mahipala had lost land which had been in the kingdom only a few years before in his father's time. And worse, he had lost control of the ocean-going international trade routes. But still, he had a strong kingdom. So the book in Baghdad said. He had four armies, and each was between 700,000 men 
and 900,000 men, so pretty much a million people in each of these four armies. One of the armies was kept in the south to fight against the old enemies, the Rashtrakutas, the, the empire of the south. Our Arab writer thought the king of the south was the most powerful king. He was in fact called the king of India. He was that elephant king, the fourth most powerful king in the world. Another of the four armies was kept in the north to fight the Muslims in Sindh, apparently. The other two armies, the army of the east and the army of the west, they were moved around as needed. And it seems that one place they were needed was to fight against the old ancestral enemy, the Palas of the east. The Palas had kept their, their territory down in the broad plains surrounding the Ganga all the way to the sea. And it seems that after Mahipala had secured the throne, he pushed his massive armies east, down the Ganga, taking advantage of, of a Pala king who was a bit distracted, hoping to achieve complete supremacy in North India. Did you ever watch a sequel to a film and know exactly what was going to happen? The Hangover Part 2, or, or Doom 2, or The Fly Part 2. What makes them... Bad is that they're so unoriginal. They, they just copy the formula of the first film, the same basic plot points, the same basic jokes, the same characters. Often enough, actually, it's not the same characters, it's the children of the original characters. Right? And that just doesn't make sense. The world doesn't work like that. History doesn't repeat, or so we think. But the history of the Pratihara kings proves us wrong. Because what happened in this part of history is the same story is repeated over and over. The Pratihara kings on the verge of becoming the all-powerful ruler of North India. They're about to beat their enemies, the Palas. And they just succeed in doing it when along comes the southern empire, the Rashtrakutas. And they attack the Pratiharas and they send them scattering into the winds before they disappear back south. We've seen that story already several times. The same basic plot points. Maybe they even told the same jokes. The Pratiharas keeping the door open for us. That's the, the Rashtrakutas making fun of the Pratiharas. A, a Pratihara is a, is a doorkeeper. So it must have been with a certain sense of foreboding that Mahipala took his armies east to try to beat the Palas once again and become the sole emperor of North India. He must have been looking over his shoulder, back at his southern army guarding the border. Surely it wouldn't happen this time. Surely 900,000 men would be enough to keep the southerners out. Right? Right? Narasimha's family was great. I mean, not that you'll read about them in most of the modern history books. Those modern-day historians would think of his family as a, as a minor dynasty. But what do they know? He was part of the powerful Chalukya family, descended from the sun itself. Although other Chuklis thought they were descended from the moon, what did they know? His great-great-grandfather had founded a new Chalukya dynasty more than 150 years ago. And their capital is in what is now Telangana State, about 150 kilometres north of Hyderabad. It's kind of 
towards the top of southern India, a little bit on the east. His family had ruled this land for 150 years. And the founder, his great-great-grandfather, had simply been called Yudhamala, the warrior. He had an army which included 500 elephants, and he had lived up to his name and then some. Starting in his base in South India, he'd taken his armies north up to the Ganga, and even further north, all the way to the tip of India in Kashmir. And then he'd taken his armies south, conquering all of the three ancient kingdoms of southern India. And he put nearly all of India in his power, becoming the supreme emperor. And if people from other families doubted that, and if historians in later years would raise their eyebrows, what did they know? If they pointed out that there were no records of any such invasion or any such emperor of all of India in any other land, well, who cares? In Narasimha's homeland, there was no need to doubt. So his family had been founded by a mighty warrior. And ever since, all of the kings of his line had been mighty warriors, all the way down to his own father who had been king before him. His father had fought in 42 battles. And he'd earned the name the Unvanquished Hero. And once again, he had lived up to it. Well, I mean, not, not, not entirely, but almost up to it. He'd, he'd, he'd fought alongside other kings of the Rashtrakuta Empire as they tried to push the boundaries of the empire north and east. And there they'd fought against another branch of the Chaulukya family. And, and his father had, had lost and had been captured. But, you know, being captured doesn't mean that you've been vanquished. He was released... And when he was released, he waited. And when his old captor died, the empire invaded again, pushing up northwards and east into this other branch of the Chaulukyas. And there, his father, the un unvanquished hero, uh, uh, um, actually, it failed, it failed again. He was vanquished again. But they tried a third time, and this time they struck deep into the heartlands of the enemy. The fighting was fierce. The general at the head of the army of the empire, the army his father was fighting for, was killed. But so was the enemy general, the enemy king's own son. And Narasimha's father tracked down the enemy king himself, finding him in his own home, and he captured him, like seizing a crocodile from the water, as an inscription puts it. So, in the end, Narasimha's father did live up to his name. He was unvanquished. And sure, if, if that enemy king he'd captured was soon out and about and ruling his own kingdom again, well, you know, that must have been because he'd been let out or because he'd escaped or something. Anyway, now his father was gone and Narasimha had inherited the throne and he had quite a name to live up to. Like his father and his father's father, and his ancestors before him, he would serve the Rashtrakuta Emperor, fighting alongside the Emperor's forces, raiding, expanding, pushing back the borders of the Southern Empire. And there was some good news for Narasimha, because there was bound to be some more fighting soon. There was a brand new ambitious Emperor on the throne, even as Narasimha was becoming king. And he was an ambitious emperor because he'd already been fighting at the borders of the empire, even before he had come to, the, to, to rule the empire. 
the new emperor would surely want to mark his authority on the world as befitting one of the five great kings of the world, the king of the elephants. So Narasimha knew they would be fighting soon, and even better, Narasimha could hope to be given a position of responsibility when the fighting started, because he was in with this new emperor. He had married into the emperor's family. Narasimha's own son would be cradled in the shoulder of the emperor, partly raised by him almost. Narasimha and the emperor were bonded by blood. And sure enough, not even a year had passed before Narasimha was called up to fight. He gathered his army and he went to war, heading north and west this time, up into the lands that they had conquered many times before, going to face the Pratihara Emperor of North India. And Narasimhas really did live up to his family expectations, and more. Alongside the empire's other forces, perhaps even at their head, he conquered the rulers of Gujarat. Uh, these lands had been passed back and forth between the empires of the north and south many times over the years. There was nothing new here, but it was a, a good start. Narasimha then took his army up into Malwa, the, the high crossroads of India. And there he defeated the seven kings of that land, and they all had to pay tribute to the emperor. And then at last, Narasimha broke through to the empire of the north itself, to the Pratihara Empire, roaming the lands between the Ganga and the Yamuna River, the fertile heart of North Indian politics. Eventually, he found the Mahipala Emperor of North India. He cornered him when he was hiding in a temple on the banks of the Yamuna River. He surrounded the temple, and then he charged. Narasimha sent his elephants into the temple courtyard, and they were so furious and so powerful that they tore up the paving stones of the temple courtyard with their tusks. The temple fell to Narasimha's forces. In the chaos, Emperor Mahipala fled, and he fled as far as he could, not stopping to eat or sleep, trying to get away to safety. Narasimha and his men gave chase. They crossed the great river Yamuna, and they took the route down all the way downstream to the imperial city itself, to Kanyakubja. And there, Narasimha and his army destroyed the imperial city, until, says an inscription, there was nothing left there but tufts of grass. So, by the waters of the Ganga River, Narasimha stopped and let his horses drink. Mission accomplished. The old enemy put back in his place, out of power and on the run. Narasim had done his job, so he turned his army around and he went home. Narasimha, the great warrior, just like his ancestors. Oh, and you know, if the story of that war was told by Narasimha's son's poet and if it doesn't quite match up with the other inscriptions we have, if it, if it leaves out the deeds of other kings or, or the emperor himself, well, you know, let's not say anything more about that. Amongst the hills of North India, another small king is considering his options. His name is Harsha. No relation, by the way, to the Emperor Harsha from the last series, 
though it's said that Harsha's family were descended from the moon itself, from the god Indra, the beloved husband of the daughter of the Lord of the Mountains, and from the sage Chandravarman. And this Harsha says in an inscription that he ruled the whole earth encircled by an ocean, and that princes came from far-off lands rushing to him to hear his orders and obey. Now, in reality, that wasn't the case, of course. Harsha and his forefathers, they ruled a small land in the Pratihara Empire. And none of them were really very significant men in the empire. They just served the Pratihara Emperor along with the other kings and, and did their part. I wonder sometimes how people in early medieval India took these boasts in these inscriptions. I mean, Harsha went maybe a bit further than most, made a bit bigger boasts about ruling the whole world and that stuff. But this sort of thing was everywhere. Small kings all across India were at it. They might not rule much more than a few dozen square miles, but their inscriptions would boast that they are ruling from sea to shining sea. It's hard to see how the readers of these inscriptions could think that they were literally true. I mean, this wasn't a dark age. There was a fair amount of trade going on. There was a fair amount of literacy and education too. Many of Harsha's subjects must have known that Harsha didn't rule the world. Now, probably the inscriptions were never meant to be understood literally. But that still makes them rather peculiar. I mean, lots of the inscriptions, not, not Harsha so much, but those of other small kings, lots of the inscriptions mention specific place names. They mention kingdoms and lands that the kings in the inscription claim to have conquered. And often enough, those, those kingdoms still existed. These boats are weird. It would be like the president of America saying, we've conquered Mexico and, and the king of Mexico has bent down and kissed my toes and my toes are so shiny that he could see his own face. All the while with, with Mexicans coming and going. Weird. It's odd because in our time, outlandish boasts like that come across as pretty pathetic. I think we tend to feel that really powerful people don't have to make up conquering a new land. If you're really powerful, you don't need to tell anyone that you're powerful. And maybe people in early medieval India felt the same. Maybe they rolled their eyes when they read these inscriptions with these boasts. Maybe though it was part of their identity, right? in the same way that some people today claim to believe silly things just to mark themselves out as belonging to a certain group. Or maybe they just took it as a metaphor, a symbol of power. Anyway, where were we? Harsha. No relation of Emperor Harsha from last season. He was a small king and he ruled from the city of Kajuraho. Kajuraho is world famous today, but, but back then it was just a, a fairly sleepy temple town near where the Ken River cuts its way through dry, chippy rock. We're about a week's walk south of the imperial city. So close enough to have to embay the emperor, but far enough to live a fairly uninterrupted, peaceful life. And that's what Harsha did for the beginning of his life, at least. He lived a perfectly ordinary life of a small king, ruling the whole earth, being so brilliant that he was as bright as the sun, being honey to the eyes of his friends and that sort of thing. 
And by the way, the inscriptions add, being absolutely embarrassed when anyone sung his praises. He must have been embarrassed quite a lot. Harsha did the proper thing for a small king of his time. He got married to a proper woman from the same caste. A political marriage to another kingdom. Her name was Kantrika. So there was Harsha, small king extraordinaire. And Harsha was considering his options. The southern empire had just invaded. And they'd beaten his master, the emperor. And they'd sent his master running away into hiding. They'd even destroyed the imperial city. And this, Harsha seems to have thought, was a great opportunity. An opportunity to establish his own large kingdom. But not as you would have thought. Not by stepping into the power vacuum left when his master had been beaten. No, that sort of thing never really worked out. Now, this was an opportunity to help the emperor, his master, to play the role of the loyal servant. Somehow, Harsha found Emperor Mahipala. Mahipala was on the run at this point. He'd, he'd fled on horseback. Maybe he'd made his way south and east and he, he came into that hilly country that Harsha ruled. Harsha found the emperor Mahipala and restored him to his throne. And Harsha's bet paid off because Mahipala managed to regain the empire, managed to reconquer almost all of his lands, and, and maybe even more, from the Kalingas in the east coast, across the mountains, splitting South India from the north, and even going down and causing trouble to those in the south, spoiling the pastime of the king of Kerala. So says an inscription, although maybe that's just boasting too. Either way, Harsha got the credit for putting the emperor back on his throne. And that elevated Harsha. It gave him power, more than his forefathers had ever had. No longer was he just a king. Now he was a king on the verge of greatness. This new power would serve his family well. By and by, Harsha and his proper wife had a son. And they gave him the name of a great emperor, Yashovarman. Reflecting their ambition, perhaps, they wanted their son to carry the family to greater power still. And Yashovarman, their son, seems to have shared that ambition. When the time came and Harsha died and his son took power, Yashovarman took the little embers of power that his father had made and he blew on them. He managed to get a good army together and he headed out of the capital city, away from the sleepy temple town by the river, heading north. Up there was a hill. A remarkable hill. It seemed to have splintered off from the nearby mountain ridges. It was high with steep sides. Actually, it had long been famous, this hill. Inside was a sacred pool and, and pilgrims had been coming here for hundreds of years at least, maybe more. But Yashovarman would have been interested in this hill for other reasons too. Because on top of the hill was a fort. And maybe even better, nestled around the foot of the hill was a town. And this town was famous for making swords. This was everything that a would-be conqueror could want. A high defensible hill fort and a ready source of arms to supply his army. Yashovarman 
took the hill for himself. And to mark out his victory, he built a great temple in the latest style. He built it back in that sleepy old temple city which had been his father's capital, Kajarahu. And it's a remarkable temple. It's to Vishnu, and inside there's an image placed there by Yashavarman with three faces, one human, one lion, one boar, three incarnations of Vishnu. The story of the boar incarnation might have especially been on Yashavarman's mind. It's the story of, of Vishnu saving the whole earth with his strength. We've, we've heard it before. And the story had been used as an emblem by kings as far back as the Gupta Empire to mark their rise to power. Actually, the image itself, it's still there today, it's got an interesting history, one which reflected the turbulent times. In an inscription just outside the temple, Yashovarman tells us about it, how this image had once belonged to this king, how another king had taken it away after a battle, how he had then gifted it to yet another king. Yashavarman's a, a little bit ambiguous about how he got the image himself. All of this was in sleepy old Kajraho. But as time went on, the centre of political power in the kingdom increasingly shifted northwards, away from the temple town towards that fort hill, with the sound of swords being beaten out, rising from the town below the capital of a king with military ambitions. Yashavarman would still pay lip service to the emperor that his father had saved, but clearly something more was going on. Clearly, he and his family were destined for something greater. And indeed, from there, Yashavarman conquered almost all of North India, all the way up to Kashmir, or so an inscription says. And yet... That particular inscription is almost certainly more than empty boasting. Because Yashavarman and his father's obedience to the emperor had, had achieved much, had set their dynasty on a new path, one of real military might and significant political power. And pretty soon it would grow into a dynasty called the Chandala dynasty, which would rule for a quarter of a millennium. But that's a story for another day. Every week we read something from the original sources. This week I thought we'd just read that inscription of Yashavarman, the one we, we talked about um, just outside the temple. Actually, it was found out of place in the ruins of the temple. It's a, a big old stone slab of a thing. Um, it's written in Sanskrit and it goes something like this. Adoration to the holy Vasudeva. May that Vaikuntha protect you, who frightened the whole world with his roaring, as boar and as man-lion slew the three chief Asuras, Kapila and the rest, terrible in the world, and who possessed one body which by the boon of Brahman enjoyed freedom from fear and could be destroyed only by Vaikuntha having assumed those forms. May the three strides of the god Hari made when he was cheating Bali, and at once praised by the astounding gods and demons protect the three worlds. Even now, that one father of the three worlds, Hara, bears on his head the holy water, 
which respectfully then offered by Brahman, fell on Harry's lotus foot. May that God protect you, on whose famous breast, broad like the wall of the Unja mountain, and covered with drops of waters that had appeared like the star-covered sky, and marked with scars by the swords of the Daityas, fell, withdrawn from all other inhabitants of heaven. Many glances of Lakshmi, agitated with confusion at the proximity of the Mandara mountain. Deep like the ocean, pleasing like the moon, radiant with the brilliancy of the sun, firm like the creator, great like the noblest of mountains, munificent like the trees of paradise, tell me truly, if anywhere there's been another lord, charming, with a multitude of spotless excellences, unchangeable to the end of the world, equal to Yasho Varman. What an entrance. From nature manifested, and chainless, there proceeded here the Great One, from that was born self-consciousness, which engendered the group of the organ. From that, in due order, the subtle elements took their origin, and from them the gross elements, and from them afterwards proceeded the world. Ashim actually going right the way back to the beginning of creation in his origin story. Then, when the whole world had come to an end, there was first here by his own greatness the mighty creator, the first sage of all kinds of knowledge, the divine witness on high, skillful in creating the three worlds, that ruler over all, who dwells on the filaments of the opening lotus. From that creator of the universe, that ancient being, that sage who is the abode of sacred knowledge, sprang those early sages of holy conduct. Manichi and the rest, Atri one of them, begat the sage Chandratreya, who by his ceaseless austerities acquired fierce might, and who is a flame of the unfeigned, intensely radiant knowledge. The family proceeding from him, who caused the welfare of the worlds, and was acquainted with every science and a receptacle of sacred law that came to him of its own accord, is a fit object of laudation. A family where neither prowess has caused oppression nor flattery elation, in which there has not been a particle even of feebleness and where the attainment of the object desired has not tended to the destruction of the possessor. How shall we praise the princes of spotless fame of that family, whose thoughts were nobly directed towards the protection of people in distress, the possessors of every blessing, full of energy, inasmuch as they practiced the conduct of the golden age, had a meritorious existence, and who had the strength to destroy as well as to protect the whole earth. Among them was the illustrious prince Nanuka, a touchstone to test the worth of gold of the regal order, who playfully decorated the faces of women of the quarters with the sandal of his fame, and of whom, inasmuch as his enemies without exception bowed down at the progress of his unprecedented valour, princes confounded through fear carried the command on their heeds like a garden, garlands. As he conquered many hosts of enemies, and was shaped like the god of love, his name made known by the spread of laudations uttered by groups of delighted pangreists, at once took its place in the minds of dear-eyed women, whose bodies were emaciated with love of him, while despair unobstructedly forcibly took hold on crowds of antagonists. From him, who in battle defeated the enemies, and whose speech was like of that, that of Vakpati, the lord of speech, was born the illustrious Vakpati whose spotless fame roams about in the three worlds, together verily with the rays of the sun, whose pleasure mound was that Vindhya, the peaks of which are charming with the sweet notes of his excellences, sung by Kirata women seated on spotless lotuses, on which groups of peacocks are made to dance by the bubbling noise of waterfalls rushing down from the tops. 
As the moon and the Kastaba arose from the ocean of milk, so were born from that home the wonder of two sons, Jayasakti and Vijayasakti. Princes, when they were met together, enraptured praise with the shaking of heads the deeds of both of them, by the unmeasured prowess of whom adversaries were destroyed, as woods were burnt by a blazing fire. The younger of the two begat a son named Rahila, thinking of whom the enemies enjoyed little sleep at night. Who were never tired at the sacrifice of battle, where the terribly wielded sword was the ladle, where the oblation of clarified butter was the streaming of blood, where the twanging of the bowstrings was the exclamation, which exasperated warriors marching in order were priests, successful with his counsels as with sacred hymns, sacrificed like beasts, the adversaries in the fire of the enmity, which made to blaze up high by the wind of his unappeased anger. Then the most excellent of rulers, whose vigour was aught but slight, begat the illustrious Prince Harsha, who was almost like a tree of paradise, the flowers of whose wielding expanding fame made the regions fragrant with their scent of perfume even now. In him were fortune and eloquence combined, statesmanship and heroism, vigour radiant with the quality of goodness and complete patience come to him by nature, contentment and a desire for victory, modesty and self-confidence. Endless as are his excellencies, what is then that we shall praise of that meritorious store of marvel? He who was afraid to offend against the law, anxious to worship the feet of Vishnu, the enemy of Madhu, unacquainted with wicked utterances, abashed when his own excellencies were being enumerated, void of calmness speech, and mute by birth to utter untrue words. What person then was he that he is thus praised, as in every respect endowed by nature with famous qualities? He, of beautiful body and unblunted intellect, with due rights married a suitable lady of equal caste, named Kanchaka, sprung from the Chahamana tribe. Arundhati, priding herself to be superior, was nevertheless unable to measure herself with her devotion to her husband. And it was for this reason that she, although a good wife and intent to do the behest of her husband, extremely abashed as it were, became so utterly emaciated. She bore to him that frontal ornament of princely families, the illustrious king Yashovarman, who was with a sword to cut down the Gaudas as if they were pleasure creepers, equal to the forces of the Kassas, and carried off the treasure of the Kusalas, before whom perished the Kashmiri warriors, who weakened the Matilas and was, as it were, a god of death to the Malwas, who brought distress on the shameful Chedis, who was to the Kurus what a storm is to trees and a scorching fire to the Gujaras. What a series of tremendous boasts. I mean, I challenge you to outboast that. And right at the end, Yashavarman is saying that he was a scorching fire to the Gujaras. Those are the people that he served, right? They're almost certainly the Pratihara emperors. And in fact, his family is going to go on and, and basically become the sort of nannies of the Pratihara emperors and then go on to have power in their own name. 
But all of that is a story for a different episode, in fact, for a, a different season, because we're drawing to the close of the main episodes of this season. I hope you enjoyed the episode. It's been a bit of a break since the last episode, but my goodness, it's good to be back. If you have been enjoying the episodes, please consider donating to my wife's charity, the Snail Situ Patrick Memorial Fund. There, there's a link in the website, and there's a link to the website in the description of this podcast. I hope that wherever you are, you're doing well, you're finding joy, and until next week, take care.